Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the photography podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full-time jobs, full-time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of your own. It's episode 135, and today, guys, I have a great co-host who's joining me, a buddy of mine who... Let's say that I've always tried to hang out with him. If you guys have that friend in high school when you go through and you're like, you really like him, they like you. It's not like a fake thing, but you never get much time to hang out. You never do anything outside of seeing yourself at school. And you walk through the hallway, you're like, hey, hey, Jeff. He's like, hey, Aaron, hey, man, high five. And that's about it. That's kind of what mine and Jeff's relationship <laughs> is. We never really hang out outside of a professional situation, but we see each other all the time at these. Like, Create for Thrive Retreat was a perfect example of just seeing you in the hallway, high fiving you, and never getting to spend any seconds with you. Right. But I love having Jeff Harmon in here, and I love calling you a friend, even though I've never seen your house, I've never seen you outside of a photography event. Yeah. How's it going, Jeff? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so excited about it. Oh, I'm excited to have you. I mean, you're a master photographer uh, from no, Master no, no. Photography <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> you know, when we created the name of the show, I was super nervous about that part of it, because I, oh, I really? thought people would think, well, these guys think they're masters of photography and then if they saw my <laughs> my my work at all they'd be like oh no he's not a master and uh <laughs> but the whole concept is more like no this is a podcast intended to help people to master their photography help them on their journey especially those who are less experienced than getting a good start and and heading towards that path and and that we are all on a journey to master our photography that's that's the actual concept i know the name itself you don't get that, so it's it's hard to to have that. Comfort. It's not as pretentious as you might think. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us hear it as the verb and not the noun, right? And also, guys, right here in the beginning, I have with us with me and Jeff, we have a secret co-host that's joining me, which is Mary Beth Kaczynski. Hey, Mary Beth. Hi. We call her Mega Rally, and we'll talk more about the Mega Rally nickname here in the next episode. So you guys are hearing Jeff Harmon right now in this episode while I'm out in the Faroe Islands. And the next week, next Wednesday's episode, is going to be with Mary Beth, who is has just completed a 23-straight day of Milky Way, plus what she describes as a more intense two days than all of those 23-straight days of Milky Way following the Aurora for two days. So Mary Beth, you're going to be with me in this next episode. But I wanted you along as a co-host while we listen to Jeff. Because Jeff Harmon, before we get into our discussions today, I always want to hear the stories, the adventure. And so I'm curious, where have you gone out recently with your camera? What's some of your recent adventures? Yeah, good question. So I went a couple weeks back in uh, in August 2019. I went to uh, some hike, did some hiking in the Albion Basin here in oh. Utah. I've always wanted to go up there, and that was late August. Okay. Yes. I, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I have a question. I'll let okay. you go. I'll let you go. Right. I don't want to spoil anything because I think I know what's going to happen. All right. So I, I actually, we wanted to go, my wife and I like to go hiking around in Utah all the time. And sometimes I bring my camera. I, most of the times I bring my camera. But so, and sometimes it's just like, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to lug along the gear, <laughs> right? So, so I leave it <laughs> home. But, uh, but this was definitely one because I, I especially I'm, I needed to test out some some new gear that I'm I'm trying out. So I, was, I have a, a tripod leg and ball head from Colorado Tripod, brand new company, new manufacturer that's just start, started to create some really good 
high quality gear at a very reasonable price. So uh, they sent me some stuff and I need to go test it out and compare it with what I have. And then I also have a new tool called the Sat Pack the that sat I needed. Pack. Yeah, S A T P A Q that I need to test out. So hmm. this, everyone knows what the tripod is, but the Sat Pack <laughs> is really cool for photographers, especially those that are going to be doing something like you are always saying people should do, Aaron, and <laughs> going out and having a photog adventure. Be, especially if you're going to go with Aaron, you need this. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hey. <laughs> Getting a flat tire and having zero communication with the world is a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what, what, this, what this device does is it's a really simple little add-on that you temporarily put on your phone when you are out of cell phone coverage, and it will oh. let you send text messages via satellite. And uh, so it's, it's, it works extremely well. And the really cool part about it, because there's lots of options for this. This isn't the only company that does this. But the only one I know of that works this way with Satpak, where you don't have a subscription plan that you have to pay for to be able to send those messages. You do have to buy messages, but it's, it's a pay-by-message kind of. You have to buy messages in a bundle. So you so don't the, have a monthly fee if you're not no going out fee. that's charging you. You just Yeah, so if you're a hobbyist that goes out and does photog adventures once every couple of months and you just want to have something that if you get in trouble, you can be able to send a message even though you're likely to be out of cell phone coverage, then this is a perfect perfect tool for this. Just a, like emergency preparedness sort of thing. And oh. a very reasonable cost. So I like you said that. it connects with your phone. Yeah, I like it. I like the sound of it too. But how does it connect to your phone? Yeah, it's a it's a little physical device that you do. It's it kind of looks like a clamp, sort of that you clamp just to the by your phone. It it connects oh. via via Bluetooth. So it's it's uh, but oh. it has to be like real close to your phone too. And uh, so you just it it it's super simple. Works on Android and iOS. So I I had this objective that I need to go test this out. They they sent this to me and, and uh, it sounds awesome. It sounds exactly what I would want as a <laughs> hobbyist that goes out and yeah. does the occasional photog adventure. And because uh, I don't want to pay a subscription fee, I, I might use it this month and not for three months. And that's fine. You can totally do that. So uh, so I was going to go test this out and I thought, okay, Albion Basin's way high up in the mountains here in Utah. I can go up there. There, there won't be cell phone coverage there and it'll be perfect. I can try this. And then we get so we went we go on a seven mile hike um, to through through the Albion wow. Basin. Wonderful hike! It was really really fun. Uh, testing out the tripod. There's a, a lake up there to, to take some photos at. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful day, and we even found a, a little bit of an uh, an uh, area where there was snow still left over in August in the mountains. It was high up enough that we still there were still like little valleys in, in there that had snow. And we could we took a bunch of really fun shots uh, with the the snow there just melting off and it was cool. Still plenty so, of snow up that high. It wasn't plenty, but there were pockets. There oh, were okay. pockets of snow. Gotcha. Yeah, up that high. And the but the problem was this is where a ski resort is, and they have plenty of cell phone coverage there. <laughs> so I never once got out of cell phone coverage. In fact, there was more coverage there than at my house. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so it didn't work out with being able to to give it the full test. I've tested it and, and sent messages because you can obviously turn off your carrier connection anytime you want. So you oh, can yeah. turn that off and send a message, and it, it works. But 
Um, I did. I wanted to actually be out of cell phone coverage, and <laughs> right. it didn't work. <laughs> oh man! So maybe I'm gonna pick up on a spoiler here, but I was curious. Albion Basin, man. I've always wanted to get up there for the wildflowers. And August, late August, is really one of the great times to go. Is that what you were capturing? Did you have a lot of wildflowers when you went up there? They were not nearly as good that week when I went as it was just a couple weeks prior. My wife had actually gone with some of her friends a few weeks prior. That's why we went there this time because she's like, oh, we got to go see. The wildflowers (laughs) are incredible. There's blue everywhere. And when we got up there, there was still a lot, but she's like, oh, this isn't nearly as good as it was. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> two weeks gosh. Ago. Like, oh, whoa. Uh, so yeah. disappointing. That's intense. <laughs> so with just two weeks difference, it really was significantly diff- uh, It was a loss of flowers. A lot of them gone by the time you made it up there two weeks later. Yeah, Utah in the summers is pretty hot usually, but we've had an especially hot, longer hot summer than normal. So it's... It's taken a toll on the the vegetation. Uh, so yeah. even that high up, it's it's really started to to change things. I think normally that time of year would be excellent, but the the heat was more than it's been for some time now. So it just kind of scorched them. Oh man, that's too bad. So photographically speaking, what went really well on that trip? Uh, it, what what went well was the flowers were there, and and I still haven't even processed the images, but. <laughs> Classic Botox adventure. <laughs> as, as is the story with everybody. Yeah, it's, it's classic. And uh, but so the flowers were really fun, and the pathways through it, the composition opportunities were just huge. It was awesome to be able to to have those. Uh, it was the, the one thing that kind of didn't work well was there were tons of people there too. So it was tough to get anything without people in it. There were people going both directions oh. all the time. And uh, so we, we sat and waited for a long time trying to have people not be there. And we eventually have to give up. But like, yeah, we, we've got to keep going. We, I just can't wait here forever to try to have this work out. So we, we were there for hiking mostly. It was just me trying to take some photos. So yeah, uh, so we, we had to make the decision to just kind of move on. But then the, the snow part was awesome. There was nobody trying to check out the snow. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we, that was really cool to be able to do that. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, that adventure getting out for wildflowers, hiking, even some snow up in this area. How often do you usually get to get out with your camera? Because I know that you have a full-time job that keeps you very busy. Yeah, it's not nearly as much as I I would like. It's so much fun to go do it. And I really don't even care if I come up with a, a really good photo that realized my creative vision that's that's almost not the point and that's part of what i think makes it so it remains fun for me i i'm mostly there to be active and be in the outdoors and spend some time with my wife and and it's a side benefit if if a really cool photo comes out of it absolutely it's all about the adventure yeah yeah that sounds like a awesome trip like i i love utah i really do so i I love i I love hearing (laughs) stories about utah and just I don't know. It gives you warm and fuzzy feelings. <laughs> yeah, Mary Beth is from Chicago and the Upper Peninsula of uh, Michigan. Yeah. And so you just, I I love seeing so many people from Chicago come to Utah and fall in love. Oh, with I love it. Sweet. So I'm stoked to have Jeff Harmon here because as he's already mentioned once already is that he calls himself the hobbyist. And I have had some people say to me, Jeff Harmon's not a hobbyist. 
Jeff Harmon's a professional. Look at what he's doing. He's doing a podcast. He's, do you think he's doing that for free? Do you think he's doing blah, blah, blah for free? And I had one guy in specific say that to me. And I'm like, nah, he's a hobbyist. He's excited about being a hobbyist. He's got another full-time job, yada, yada, yada. And they still think that you can't call yourself a hobbyist. And so I want to talk about the aspect of photography. Like Photographers, more so than any other hobby I've ever had, are, are full of people who just want to transition as fast as they can from hobbyist to professional in some way or another, whether by their following, whether by their, you know, how much money they can earn. And it's part of our culture. And I'll, I'll bring up a quote here in a second. But just the whole idea that you can't be happy unless you're moving into that professional side hustle some way. And Jeff, for years now, you've called yourself a hobbyist. So outside of defending your side of being a hobbyist, I want you just to define for us quickly what it is that you see yourself as a hobbyist still. Because, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can call yourself a professional photographer and one of them is selling your images. I don't sell my images. So I'm not necessarily a professional photographer in some ways. So how do you define your position, hobbyist, professional photographer? So the the first distinction that I think to make is hobbyist doesn't mean you don't have professional work. Okay. Like a professional quality work that you're not oh, I see. producing images that are really, really good images. Absolutely. That's still possible that you can be a hobbyist. You can be a hobbyist for 40 years. And mm -hmm. over the course of those 40 years, you got to learn a thing or two about photography and you're going to probably produce some pretty incredible results. So those are not necessarily synonymous with hobbyist and poor quality. And that's, I think, where a lot of the people, when they're saying you're not a hobbyist, and I don't consider my work to be really high quality yet anyway. I, I feel like I have so <laughs> much to learn that uh, there's there's so much better things that I know I can do. And and I'm I, it drives me and it makes me excited to get there. So I say I'm a hobbyist because, like you said, I have a full-time job. I'm a, an information security professional. So... I spend 80 plus hours a week doing nothing about photography <laughs> and, uh, and it, it consumes a lot of my time. In fact, to, to really be good at that day job, I have to spend time in my free time reading about it and keeping up on things. The, the world of information security changes so fast. If you're not spending personal time keeping up on it, you're not going to be good at your job. Oh, wow. So, so you can't even use the time outside of clocked in for photography yeah. 100%. You're still spending time as an IT guy outside of being clocked in. Absolutely have to. Yeah, to keep myself uh, per, you know, up to date and and actually good at what I'm doing, I have to do that. So, I, you know, like my my Twitter follows, I have a mixture between photography people that I, I love to follow and and see information and information security people that are telling about like, you know, what the bad guys are doing out there and, and how things are, are evolving with attacks that are happening on computer systems. So, um, so yeah, I, I have to keep up with, with all of that. And I just, I, this is not my full-time job, which is what most of the people, most everyone would define as a professional photographer is that's the primary thing you do to make money and provide for yourself and your family. Yeah, that makes complete sense. One Just recently this week, a buddy of mine, Jeff Peterson, mentioned that he defines a professional photographer as someone who is, A, gaining their income through sales of their photography, 
right. or actually is out and hired by a magazine, a company, something to produce images, and those images are being you know marketed and used for the purpose, and they were paid for their images. People who, like me, teach workshops and teach podcasts and teach YouTube tutorials, as much as this is my full-time job, as I'm doing this only as my only source of income, he doesn't even consider me a professional photographer per se as I'm more of a professional teacher and mm -hmm. you know I really see that and I understand that point and you know maybe someday I'll be a professional photographer when I sell some images but for now I'm proud of being a professional teacher and I see you a lot like that Jeff you're a professional teacher alongside with me well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. I've seen Jeff work. So let me bring up a quote. Uh, here's the thing. There's a couple things about hobbyist versus professional that I want to discuss in photography that at, over the years I've realized with other photographers. And one of it is the whole followers, followers, followers perspective. And the other thing is it being a side hustle. And this mentions side hustle specifically. This quote comes from an article uh, in the metro.co.uk um, website. And this author talks about how writing for her was something she loved to do. And now she's being paid to write. And she mentions about the situation of hobbies. She goes, specifically the hobby of story writing, the idea of story writing for the sake of it, is increasingly considered the preserve of children. That's not what hobbies should be about. They should be about leisure and love. And you think about hobbies are supposed to be about leisure and love, and yet so often, how I do a search for hobbies and the culture of hobbies, and all I get on Google results are a bunch of like ideas on how to turn your hobby into a side hustle, how to turn your <laughs> hobby into some money, how to take that love of knitting and make money doing it. And it seems like it's a very prominent, a prominent view of our culture right now that you are doing something, and if it means anything, it's because you've earned money doing that. If someone comes to my house and, or someone comes to someone's house in an imaginary scenario and says, check out this honey that I produce with my bees and blah, 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 what's one of the first thing people will say? Oh, are you selling that? Right. Why is it, do you think, in our culture that we feel so much value on something that you do as a talent that can make you money too? But if it wasn't making you money, it seems to have less value. Right. So why do you think people are like that right now? Well, it it's probably has to do with, with the culture primarily here in the United States, we, hmm. we have an economy based on this. Like anybody that's the, the classic American dream, anybody can think of whatever they want to do and they can go do it. There's, there's no, nothing really preventing you from doing that other than maybe like economic realities and <laughs> what it takes to get <laughs> yeah. started and you know, that, that whole aspect of it. But as far as the culture goes, it is one that has, from the beginning, been set up to make it so that you could be free to be able to pursue your dreams and do what you want. So I, I think it just it's built into the fabric of the American society to do that, to take it to to leverage the things that you love and the things that you're good at, and have that be the way that you survive, the the thing that that provides for you, your family, your loved ones. And, uh, and so, so it's just built into the fabric of society. The, the concern that I have about it was photography is my 
retirement plan. (laughs) (laughs) It is what I want to do when I'm retired. I want to focus on it like exclusively just because I enjoy it so much. I enjoy every aspect of it. I love the technical parts with the camera, learning how to operate and use the camera. I love the uh, going out on uh, outdoors and putting myself in a situation where I can really see the beauty of the earth and try to, to capture the mood and the scene that is out there. I love the post-processing aspects. I know, I know there's plenty of photographers who don't, but I love right. to going back on the computer and using the tools, the, the really fun software that there is to be able to edit it. So from beginning to end, I, I just love the whole thing. And it's my it's what I want to do when I retire as my full time hobby at that point because I'm retired and I don't want to I, I worry if I tried to switch away from what I am doing professionally to provide for my, me and my family today if I switch to my hobby doing that and that's how I'm going to now have that be my primary source of income that it will change and I won't love it like I do now because it's now my job and <laughs> maybe I would, I don't know. And a lot of photographers said, oh, don't worry about that. It still stays there. As long as you truly love it and it's truly a passion, that doesn't go away because that's how you're making money. But I, I just worry that I, it would become more stressful. I'd be worried about like, am I doing enough to be able to make the the money that we need to, for my family to to live the way that we are now. And, and I don't want to add stress. I want to do it as a release and as something that I, I am enjoying as a release and not as my job. So that that's how I'm viewing it. I love that. And let's talk about the stress element of that because that kind of ties in to the things that I find are detrimental to the culture of us photographers out there that there's so many people who like your retirement plan are at the point where they're heading into retirement or at retirement and they're finally getting time to be that photographer that they've idolized that national geographic photographer who goes to far out reaches of the world and sees them through the eyes of a lens and captures images to bring home and share and capture that emotion and they're loving that and i feel like there's a stress You guys out there listening who are brand new photographers or four years into it plus photographers, you probably have felt the stress. And, you know, there's two things in the stress that I want to emphasize, and I'll mention both of them, Jeff, and then I'll let you comment on them. The first off stress is being original. Man, there is so much pressure on there. A lot of people saying things like, don't just do what everyone else is doing. Get your composition different than everyone else. And there's so much pressure put on you. And some people naturally can handle it and have great ideas. Some people are naturally confident that they don't necessarily recognize that their composition is the same as someone else's. And they still feel very proud about what they have. And some people feel absolute worry and paraly- they're paralyzed standing out there at Horseshoe Bend thinking, how do I, how do, I do this differently? How do I, how do I capture this differently. I've emphasized this before, and I want to say it again. Don't be afraid of capturing the icons. If you are learning the piano, you're going to learn how to play Mozart and Beethoven. You don't get on a piano for your first year and go, oh my gosh, are you playing Beethoven? Come on, don't waste it. 
Play something <laughs> unique. Get something original out there. Yeah, don't play Mozart. Try something original and just compose your own music. That's not going to be possible for everyone. And photography shouldn't feel like something where you have to be completely original and stress out trying to be original. And then the last thing is that stress of having everyone love your work find out what your name is, find out who you are. I mean, a lot of the people who participate in the Facebook groups that come in, when I've seen them come in and out of the Photog Adventures listeners Facebook group, a lot of people come in almost solely for the purpose of spamming us like they spammed other groups, their image and their story and their Instagram link and their portfolio just because they're in side hustle mode and follower gaining mode. And they almost don't participate in the group with other photographers and talk about it on a nice level of here we're friends let's share our work it's all look at me look at me check out my stuff and go look at my stuff and love me and and you'd like my picture right well check out all this other stuff I mean there's too much ulterior motives underlining all these things and this stress of trying to gain followers if you're not good at it you get pressured to not share your image with all these other people who are trying to side hustle professional be a photographer this article going back to it she says Why join a drama club or choir if you can't act or sing? The answer is simple, because you want to. And I want people to join photography more for the sake of being out there like other photographers and capturing images and not stressing so much on whether they are amazing, have a following, are being original, and that their images are perfect. It doesn't matter if you can't sing or can't act very well. You're doing it because you love it. And I just, I want the community of photographers to be more open to the hobbyist and stop stressing. So on those two points of stress, whether it's by being original or trying to gain a following, have you come across that, Jeff? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's start with the composition, the unique composition stress. Yeah. Uh, I totally hear that. I, I hear it constantly. And it is good advice. If you want your photos to stand out from others, um, then you do need that. That's that's an important aspect. You can't have a photo that is just like a hundred thousand other photos out there and expect that you're going to sell anything or have it be noticed. That's absolutely a true statement. In but that it, situation it, that you just but said, it depends though? on yeah, it depends on your objective. Is your yeah. objective to sell your photo and have it stand out from hundreds of thousands? Exactly. Or is your objective to enjoy an experience, have fun capturing it? maybe print it up for yourself and put it on your wall as look at that, I created that photo, then it doesn't matter if it's exactly like all these other photos that are out there. And a lot of other people who are not photographers won't even know that it's like that there's a bunch of images like that out there because the average person doesn't have a concept for that. <laughs> right. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to interject and say, can you imagine, like, I love the Mona Lisa. It's a great picture. What if instead of having to go to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, I was so talented as an artist that I could paint a Mona Lisa and hang it on my wall? How cool would that be? Yeah. How is that it, wrong for capturing the same really great sunset at Horseshoe Bend? And, and more, I, I think, to me anyway... And I'm speaking again as a hobbyist here, not a professional photographer. <laughs> the The joy I find in it is the process of getting there. That's what I really like. I like it. So even if it is an image that has been done over and over and over, it's not my image that's been done over and over and over. Mm. And the going through the process, you learn what it took for that 
professional who took that photo and created that image, you learn everything that it took for them to get there. And that is extremely valuable. And then it will become less stressful later when you're further down the path towards being a master of photography <laughs> that you, now, yes, that's going to become a natural step later where you are on site, you're at some, some location, and now you're going to say, I know exactly what I'm doing with my exposure. I know exactly what I'm looking for. I know what I'm going to create. I have a vision for what I want. Now I'm going to go find a composition that I want to use. And it will be natural instead of stressful. And so, so I don't think it's worth worrying about it. Like you'd said at first, if you're learning the, the concepts and if, just getting exposure, if knowing when you are coming to a scene and you want to capture it, what exposure you should use, if that is a struggle still, then that's where you need to spend time worrying about things. Don't spend time stressing about the composition Amen. yet. That's, that's not worth spending your time on at that point in your progression with your photography. So it, it comes in stages. It comes as you as you do things, as you gain experience. And if if you try to, I, I guess a, a good analogy for me because I'm really awful at this too, a golf swing. If you've ever tried golf, there are so many things that you can try to think about as you're trying to swing a golf club. And if you think about all of them at once, it's going <laughs> to end up really bad. That's a great analogy. And so you have to pick something you're going to work on when you, you have to go to the driving range to practice. You've got to pick one thing. You can't be thinking about 30 things that you're trying to change with your golf swing at once, or it will just be bad. You think you do one thing and you practice and practice and practice until that one thing is now part of your swing and part of what you do. It's very natural and then move on to the next thing and maybe even have to get a professional to help you with what should be my next thing. Cause you may not know. So I, I think it's a very similar kind of analogy there to me with with how a person learning photography should dive into this and, and make it a, a more enjoyable experience along the way. Yeah, absolutely. You guys get really good at playing Mozart and playing Beethoven and then write your own songs and go in that path if that's something that interests you. Don't stress out. Have fun. When you have a wall full of images of all the iconic locations, even Mesa Arch, the off-ridiculed Mesa Arch, <laughs> if you get your own Mesa Arch image, you're going to love it. It doesn't matter yeah. if it looks very similar to a million other images. Right. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and take our only break of the podcast. And I'm going to come back with Jeff, and we're going to talk about three tips to get our fall photography ready. So getting ready for fall photography and doing the colors. On top of that, JPEG export. Best practices for making your image as small as possible and look great for social media sharing. So we'll come back after this break and hang out with Jeff Harmon some more. Hey guys, if you're thinking about spending any money whatsoever on a conference, then the one you should be thinking of if you are in the first two years of your photography is definitely the Create Photography Retreat. It is an incredible experience. You've got to check it out. Just at least consider it. Go, to go visit the site and check out what's there. What is unique, I think, about Create Photography is that it's a conference where we're trying to make it extremely hands-on. You're going to get tons of time using your camera and creating images while you're at the retreat instead of just listening to someone show you their really cool images and describe to you how they took them. You get the opportunity to go and try it and use it. And it's, it's an incredible way to really speed up your learning process. I think you can do 
all of that learning on your own, especially if you listen to these podcasts that we've been talking about. It's a great way to be able to get tips and, and be able to, uh, to learn and, and experience is what really drives it. But if you can imagine focusing on photography for three full days and that's all you're going to do and you're surrounded by people who are also trying to have that same kind of experience that we're all, it's a collaborative learning environment. That's what this is. That's what it's all about. And it's, it's a really, really cool experience. I've, we've done it. It's, it, this is going to be the third year now of having the retreat and it's it's just one of my very favorite things that I do every year, and and you really should go check it out. Absolutely can't wait, guys! This is the most affordable way for you to springboard your photography into the two year experience mark. Coming from one month of using your camera, at the end of three days, you will feel like you have two years of experience under your belt. It's intense, it's exciting, and you'll make friends for life. So go check it out at createphotographyretreat.com. Again, that's createphotographyretreat.com. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast, everyone. We're hanging out with Jeff Harmon, the master photography podcast host and the Photo Taco host, the guy who has so many listens on Photo Taco that I'm envious, crazy envious. Someday, Photog Adventures will hit numbers like Jeff Harmon does. So, hey, Jeff, welcome back into the podcast. We just talked about hobbyist versus professional and just really tried to celebrate the idea of being a hobbyist and that all of you at any skill level should be proud proud to be a photographer and don't feel that you're lacking in any way. Just get out there, experience it, have the adventure. Definitely. But now thinking about going into a situation prepared, it's September. October is typically the best fall colors month for most of the places in the areas here in the United States. And Jeff, you guys recently had a podcast episode on, over on the Master Photography Podcast that gave 10 tips to get ready for fall colors. And I want to share with us in this, in this audience, three of those great tips. Jeff, what were the three tips that, well, let's just go ahead and start off the bat. You mentioned the first thing was a map. What is the map that you guys are using to give you guys a head start on this? Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll make sure that uh, Aaron has that to put in the show notes, the, the link. But oh, it's yes, just, of course. It's, it's smokymountains.com slash fall foliage map, and there's some hyphens in there. So, But, <laughs> but it's, it's a, a, a map that is a fall foliage prediction map. And even though it's from the Smoky Mountains website, it's the entire United States. So it's not international. Sorry for the international listeners. Yeah. I'm sure there's other resources out there. But for the United States, this is a map that has a timeline at the bottom. It's an interactive map. And you can move this slider between dates, fall dates. So it starts at September 7th, and it goes through November 30th, which is kind of the across the United States, the, the period where fall colors are going to appear across the United States in the country. And so you can change that slider and it will show you on the map. It has a, a scale of colors where red, the full deep red, is the peak time in that area on the map that's colored this dark red for where the fall colors will be. So you can move the slider and see where for where you are in the United States what time frame they anticipate the best colors will be there. So for Utah, where Aaron and I are both at, uh, it looks like at least for the northeastern part of the state where we, we live around and, and there's big canyons, big mountain areas where we can go to, October 5th through October 12th is predicted 
And it, I, I want to emphasize predicted because this is not <laughs> fact. This is a prediction. And of course, as we try to predict Mother Nature, Mother Nature <laughs> often wins in that battle. Uh, but uh, October 5th to 12th is what's predicted to be the best time for the fall colors for us to get out there. And that's good information to have because now you know when to target getting out there to try to shoot the fall colors. Absolutely. So that's a good resource for everyone to look at. I mean, it's incredible to think that right here I can go, okay, well, September is getting sort of fall colors on these mountains. Are we getting any colors up there? I can go quickly on this and see that, well, October 5th, like you said, is peak for us here. But what if I wanted to go down and capture that one image I thought about doing in Zion National Park, and I've seen right. a cool spot, has cool trees. What did they look like in fall colors? While I'm in the peak up here in the north, I could think, you know, falsely that I should rush down to southern Utah and go capture what's happening there and then find myself disappointed after spending all the money and getting down there and seeing green leaves everywhere. So it's cool right. to look here and see that the peak for us is October 5th, but it's not even until October 19th that a place like Zion National Park actually has their peak colors, at least predicted. And so now I have something to work from if I want to plan a trip and get down there. And the second tip, I'll jump to the third tip, actually, because this is part of it. On top of this map, you've got to scout. What are your recommendations <laughs> for scouting? I mean, how do you plan something that far out in advance? Okay, so I, I've been doing photography as a really passionate hobby. Again, not professional, but <laughs> a very passionate hobbyist for many years here in Utah. And I'm, I'm really fortunate, you know, Photog Adventures has been promoting this a long time we're really fortunate to live in a place where there's just some stunningly yes. beautiful things around us <laughs> and at very short distances so it's very accessible to us and yet i don't have a single fall color photo that i'm really happy with not a single um, one not a single one I, i've taken a lot that are kind of nice and they definitely have marked some progress in my photography but nothing mm. that i'm like oh man i finally got a really good fall color photo so and and it, most of the reason it's not it, originally it was because I also didn't have the skill to capture it the way that I wanted but now it's more the problem of being in the right place at the right time and having a, a an idea of what I'm going to shoot that's really more of the problem I can you know I'll get up on a Saturday and look at the hills the, the mountains that I can I can see from my house, from my porch, and and say, oh look, the colors are there. I should go up there. And then you know we'll say, okay, well I gotta I gotta mow the lawn. I gotta take care of some other things first. And then we'll we'll run up there in the middle of the day when the lighting's super harsh and it's tough to get a good photo. <laughs> yeah. And we'll drive around and it's it's beautiful. It's really nice to be able to drive through those canyons and take a look. But then, and we'll stop somewhere and say, all right, let's try it here. But there's really nothing compelling in that location and take, try to take a picture. It's more of a reactionary kind of situation instead of one where I know exactly where I'm going to be and I know when I'm, and based on this map, when I'm going to target being there so that I have planned out the shoot. And that's, that's what's lacked, I think, so far with my own photos and trying to get something that I'm really happy with because I, I haven't done the scouting aspect of it. So I, I need to remedy that. I've got to go and actually scout it out, figure out where I'm going to be, and then follow this map and make sure that I plan ahead of time so that I can I can go and be in the right spot at the right time. Absolutely. And guys, you'll find, as you've done a lot of Milky Way photography, what are one of the key elements of our Milky Way shot? 
It's not even the Milky Way. It's that foreground element that we put in the image with the Milky Way. Like the best Milky Way image is one that has a very complementary, interesting foreground with the cool Milky Way. In this type of photography, when the foreground is the trees, is rocks, it, what do we what do we do? How do we balance this? If you don't scout the area out, you're gonna spend time sweating on a hill like I did, rushing up a trail, a hiking trail, going past cool rocks and cool trees, going, oh man, okay, where do I wanna stop? Where do I wanna stop? We <laughs> yeah. ended, Brendan and I ended up hiking for an hour and a half right up the hill until boom, suddenly, Thankfully, we had the time to do this, and we came across this big old rock that hangs out above the trees. And it was in this position that was where the wedge of the two mountains came together, this chalice shape that went down into the valley and showed off the valley of Orem and Linden and northern Utah County. And it's just, unless you have the time to scout and find a foreground subject, you're going to have a lacking element. You'll have a picture of trees, but you won't have a portfolio piece with fall colors. Yeah, it's it's really, really important. It's not to say you can't stumble across something and have it be awesome. Oh, you can. yeah. That <laughs> can happen. Time. I've had it happen, just not with fall colors. And, <laughs> but, but if you can actually plan it out, you can have a vision of what you want to do, you know exactly where you want to go, and now you just have to wait for the right time to come with the colors to be there. And then with this map, you can plan ahead, be like, okay, it looks like I really need to try to be there on this date. Now let's look at sunrise, sunsets, make sure I have a good lighting time that I can get there. Then you have a way better chance. Your, your probability of success goes up dramatically instead of the random stuff that I've been trying. <laughs> random luck you can't yeah. always just go for the lottery of a good image so the third tip that you're pulling out of your 10 tips jeff is something that i was kind of surprised by but i get it what is your third tip for everybody okay so i am a a very big proponent of not needing a lot of gear to be able to produce really stunning images you can do a lot with very little gear amen and i'm i'm really confident that People fall into a trap, especially at the beginning of their photography experience, into thinking that they have to go buy and invest in all of this gear or they have no chance of getting good images and creating the images they want. And that's just not true. Now, gear does matter. I Absolutely, it matters. It just doesn't matter nearly as much as it's made out to be. And, and mostly because of the marketing that's out there. I mean, people have a job to do. They, they're trying to get you to buy gear. So they need to market it. They need to, to make it so that you are incented to buy gear because that's their livelihood. That's what, how they're providing for their families. And they need to convince you to part with your money and buy gear. <laughs> right. So, of course, they're going to do that. I'm, I, I really think photographers should hold off and really learn how to fully leverage the gear they have before making massive investments in more gear. But I'm going to recommend some gear. <laughs> but I'm going to recommend some gear now. Yeah. And it's, it's a very small amount of money usually compared to a lot of other yeah. things you can invest in. And in this case, for fall colors, it can really be meaningful. Not, not to say you can't get really good images without it, because you absolutely can. And it's way more important to do the things we've already talked about of, of scouting a location, looking at this map, and trying to put yourself in the right place at the right time to capture some really stunning fall colors. That is way more important than this gear. But this gear is helpful, and that's a polarizing filter. 
So a polarizing filter is something that usually you, you screw onto the front of your lens. That means you have to have the right thread size because your, your lens has threads on it so that you can put a filter on for someone who may not be familiar with it. Uh, you can also buy a thread size and then use uh, some extension rings to make it so that it goes to multiple of your lenses, which is a totally great way to save off some money. You don't need to buy a filter per lens when the filter size of the lens is different. Oh, yeah, so, great idea. Yeah, yeah. So save some money there for sure. Buy the buy the one of the larger sizes, like find the largest filter size of the lenses you have, buy a filter for that size, and then buy extension uh, extensions for it so that it'll it'll stop down to the right filter size for smaller lenses that you want to use. Okay, so so these polarizer lenses, they to to oversimplify it, and and it's definitely an oversimplification. There's way more to it than this, but it's kind of like you you have these gates or or maybe we'll we'll use the analogy of like blinds in your bedroom and you can change the angle that those blinds are at to allow light in or or block light from coming in it's kind of a similar concept and it depends on the rotation of the lens or sorry the filter on your lens as to what light is being allowed in through the lens to your sensor and the reason this helps especially with fall colors is you can eliminate kind of the stray random light rays that are that come into your camera usually uh, and limit uh, especially reflections. And why you would want to do that would be it, it helps to emphasize the colors in the fall leaves if you use this correctly. And mm. you just and correctly, the way you determine that is just by, well, just rotate that filter around on your lens until it looks the best that you can make it look. And you really see the, the colors pop. It also helps with water. And fall colors combined with water is an amazing photo. That is, that's a oh. composition to seek after. Oh, if you can yeah. get reflections in the fall colors into the, the water, wow. Oh. That produces some stunning images. And you can emphasize that in the water with a polarizing lens, uh, filter on your lens even better. It makes it, make it work well. So it, it's a piece of gear. That if you already have done some fall photography and you're, you'd like to up your game just a little bit more, this is can be a pretty inexpensive piece of gear to be able to add and give a try. And, and uh, it, you know, it, it, every time I get new gear, it makes me want to go use it anyway. So it's a way to motivate yourself <laughs> to get out there. Absolutely. And, guys, there are seven other great tips for ph photographing fall color that can be found over on the Master Photography Podcast. You can read the article there at masterphotographypodcast.com, or you can check the link down below to find the article, as well as just go to the podcast, pull it up, and you guys will be able to get access to listening to Brent and Jeff is there anyone else on the episode? Nope, just the two of us. Just you and Brent. You guys are talking about all of these tips, and it'll help you. As you're driving out to scout your fall colors location, listen to this episode and get ideas, get inspired, get yourself ready for some awesome color that's coming up. Fantastic. So as you guys are getting ready for fall colors, there's other things that you can consider. Once you finally capture that awesome image, a lot of people have asked me, Aaron, what do you do to share your images online because they think that I have some professional perfect way of handling it. And honestly, Jeff, I, I don't. The way that I handle my images online is a versatile approach because I'm sharing it to videos and I'm sharing it to online website. And so with online website, everyone probably knows that resolution 72 DPI versus the 150 or 300 for print, blah, blah, blah. Well, when I'm 
doing my images, I just export out the original size in half. So I set my Lightroom up to do 50% of my image instead of just doing the full size. So that way it brings it down considerably. And I change it to 150 DPI. It's still not 72. That's better for websites. It's 150 so that it looks good on a 1920, 1080 uh, video when I plug it in there because sometimes and almost all the times I zoom in on the image a little bit and then pull out and so I want it to be as high res as I possibly can and I, I found off in the beginning of doing all these images I, I didn't want to create an image for Facebook an image for social media on Instagram and an image for the video plus an image for portfolio it got tiresome for me to do that and even with my time lapses I use this exact same setting I just go 50% down and it's 150 50 DPI, so it's a pretty large image. I get about 1.1 to 2 something megs on all of my images when I save them out. So my hard drive space fills up. So when I think about the question that I get from people on how to best save out for social media, I've always thought about Jeff Harmon because you had an episode years ago talking about the JPEG company some jpeg company was doing like something a little bit better than changing your photoshop down to like quality 9 or quality 8 on a jpeg export and you were doing a test between their plugin plus photoshop and i'm curious where you're at right now on your favorite settings for exporting out of lightroom or photoshop to get your images ready for social media Perfect. Yes, I have tons to say about this, but I'll try to go fast and just summarize. <laughs> Actually right, make so, it a Photo Taco episode. That's right. There is a Photo Taco episode about this. Uh, a few of them about this, actually. What's a keyword that people can search to find that uh, episode? Export. Export. So look for yep. export, guys, and find those episodes. I'll also do my best to find some links to include down below so you guys can find them. Export, and I'd say DPI, too. So okay. search for DPI. So let, let's, I, I want to dispel a myth. <laughs> First off, <laughs> the DPI setting does absolutely nothing if you're dealing with pixels. So if you're, if you are you saying, dealing with pixels, I mean, I'm always pic dealing with pixels. Yeah, but you're not dealing with inches with those pixels. So you're, oh, when you're see. exporting, you're not saying I want a photo that is eight by 10 inches. You're saying I want 50% of my pixels. Oh, so okay. now that means it's just going to take 50% of your pixels. It's going to, it's going to downsize, resample your photo. It's going to cut off half your pixels. It's going to do a, a really smart and intelligent way of doing that, but it's going to cut off half of your pixels and it's going to write that file out. It does not matter. You can put 1000 DPI in that box. It won't matter. So in Lightroom on the export where it says DPI, I literally, it's a redundant step. It I don't have useless to do anything. Unless you have inches that you are dealing with in in your uh dimension settings so yes if you're going to okay. choose long side of of 10 inches or long side or or you're going to do a 16 by 20 inch export now the dpi matters because it's going to do the math for you on what the pixel density you're telling it I want an 8 by 10 image, and I want a pixel density of whatever's in the dpi box right of course that's where oh. it matters any other scenario it doesn't matter I didn't, that DPI setting means nothing. Wow. I never realized that when it came down to the inches versus pixels. I just figured it was doing that in every scenario. Oh, yep. you want to have an image that's half the size of its current resolution? We'll just make the DPI this. It doesn't actually change the DPI. Nope. I had you no have idea. to have inches for DPI to matter. You have to have inches involved. And okay. most of the time we don't. Okay, Sweet. so that aside, don't worry about the DPI setting for most everything you do. 
because most of us are exporting based on pixel dimensions and it doesn't matter. So the other okay. thing then is you're going to export to JPEG almost always. That's I absolutely would recommend that. You can export to TIFF and they even made it so you can export to PNG now. That's a brand new thing in Lightroom 8.4. That doesn't, it's neither of those formats is going to be really meaningful for almost anybody listening. There's going to be extremely little difference between a TIFF, a PNG, and a JPEG, other than TIFF and PNG are going to be massively bigger files than the JPEG will. So it's not really worth it to use those other two formats unless you have a really specific purpose for it. And those listening would know if that's, <laughs> if that's what you need. So <laughs> gotcha. everyone else, just it, simplify it. It's JPEG. That's what you want to export to. And when you export, you get to say a quality number that you have when you do an export. And uh, so first, the size. I always, for social media, I do, I do two exports, one for social media and one for my portfolio if it's going to be a portfolio image. The, for, for social media, there is zero value in exporting anything with more pixels than 2048. There's just, it's not. Every really? single social media platform is going to resample your image even if it's already at 2048, these social media platforms have to pay for bandwidth and have to pay for storage right. space. They are going to do everything they can to make your photo as tiny as they possibly can and still have it be mostly recognizable. <laughs> they are going to destroy your photo, and I have tested this thoroughly. It does not matter what you do on export. They are still going to resample your photo because they have to protect their platform and their bandwidth. So you are, it won't matter. It's going to happen. There's no sense then in handing Facebook a 30 megabyte JPEG file or a 30 megabyte TIFF file. They're going to accept it and then they're going to resample it down to an itty tiny, itty bitty tiny JPEG file that is a fraction of what you uploaded. So you may as well save yourself on hard drive space and on bandwidth that you're paying for, for your ISP and size it down to 2048. 2048 is the long edge of your image then. Yes, that's saying, my recommendation. Go for your now, long edge 2048. Long edge 2048. So that's exactly what my setting is. I export to JPEG. I define a long edge of 2048 and let the computer figure out the other side. And then I set the quality setting to 77%. So and 50%. I've arrived at that number based on testing. There are Your images vary and the quality level could change based on what the pixels look like in your image. But 77% has been the very best setting that I found that for most photos ends up having the right balance between the file size and the quality, the, the way, how, how good it looks when you export. Can you do more or less than that? For sure, absolutely. And you could play around with it. If you're really worried about it for an image, you could even try it and see what the differences look like. But I'm telling you, 77% is a really, really good level to put it at to, to make one of the best, like, in general kind of settings to do there. The company you would refer to as JPEG Mini is the product oh, that yeah. I have evaluated. And it does a, it, what the idea is JPEG Mini analyzes your photo. It looks at all the pixels that are in there, and it tries to determine which quality setting will be the best for it. So I just told you 77% in general. JPEG Mini is going to say, well, actually, for this photo, we can go all the way down to 50 just the the pixels that are in there, it's going to look fine. We're going to save a lot on on file size, 
and you're still it's still going to have the same quality even if we go all the way down to 50 or on this one uh, you need 95 it, you, your pixels mean you really need 95 to get the best quality if you go down below that the quality is going to suffer it does it's a hmm. pretty effective tool for that but I haven't when I compared it against just setting it 77% on my photos as I tested it there was such a little difference that if you don't want to pay the money for the JPEG mini plugin then 77% is a really good way to go. Oh man, that is gold everybody. I mean, the idea that I personally have not tested every single digit from 50 to 100, <laughs> but now I've got Jeff Harmon here who's gone through as the guru of testing these kind of things. 77%, that number is the next save I'm going to do. I'm gonna test, I'm gonna do mine that I've been doing at 150 DPI, which apparently is pointless, and 50%, and I'm gonna try 77% and see what happens. I'm, I'm really curious, plus, the long edge 2048 because i think uh, mine always ends up being like 4000 on the biggest still or 2800 something so 2048 being long edge that's made my image is even smaller it's still big enough for a 1080p screen yep. so this is quite perfect probably for me so awesome great recommendation jeff thank you so much for that and I bet I've missed a Photo Taco episode that talked about this, and I could have already <laughs> known about this awesome right. number. Jeff, man, thanks for hanging out with me this morning. Yeah, it's been fun. Have a good one, and guys, get out there and have a Photo Taco adventure of your own. All right. See ya. <laughs>